You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So this morning, we're heading now into the body of the letter officially. Um, Paul has taken his time, has introduced himself, given a thanksgiving for the Colossian church, said a prayer, and then launched into some pretty serious Christology about the nature of Christ and who he is and his preeminence and all of these grand realities about Christ. Then he moves into this section about the clarifying of what the gospel is, what Christ in in all of his divinity has done. He has worked reconciliation for sinners. He's the one that in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And then now he moves into this official body uh, of the letter. He has made clear the gospel. All of mankind, everyone at one time, alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, as verse 21 says. What has God done with that? He has now reconciled those individuals in the body of of the flesh of his death, meaning Jesus, in order to present his people who have trusted in Christ, those who were alienated, alienated, hostile to God, doing evil deeds, able to present them what? holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. We sang the hymn this morning, Before the Throne of God Above. I, that's, that's a beautiful, wonderful hymn. There's that, that's, this is a text where that hymn comes from. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great whose priest, high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Right, My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart, something like that. I know, you know, that the whole language there is speaking of this reality. Before the throne of God above, because we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who gave his life, those of us, which is all of us, who were alienated from God, had no place with him, can now be holy, blameless, and righteous before him. I just, what an amazing gospel. I mean, you could, just, you could just stop there and just meditate on the glories of what God has done to save sinners, what he has done to reconcile us. 
So Paul lays all of this out and then he moves on into this next section. It's the gospel itself that pushes Paul on in his writing. And he moves into this incredible statement now about his sufferings. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's rejoicing in his sufferings. Now, if you have eyes to see it, and, 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 and when you read your Bible, if you have ears to hear, you'll notice that there is a lot in Scripture about the perseverance of God's people through suffering. It's just a reality of this life. And Paul is no stranger to it. This reality of even though he is this apostle to the Gentiles, he has seen Jesus on the road to Damascus, has had a conversation with Jesus. He still is one that doesn't get to skip out on the reality of suffering in this life. He is one who has his own sufferings. But the statement comes across a little confusing, right? He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. What could he mean by that? I want to just spend a little bit of time on it because it can be kind of confusing. What is he talking about? Is he, what does he mean that he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the church? If that were the only text to speak about Paul's sufferings, to speak about Christ's suffering, we could go into all sorts of bad doctrine, bad ideas about what it means as though individuals suffering added to the atonement. Fortunately, we live by principle when we read our Bibles of clear passages interpreting less clear passages. And throughout scripture, I mean, you could go to like Hebrews 7.27, it speaks about the reality of Christ's once for all sacrifice. Christ died a sufficient sacrifice. When he is on the cross, one of his final words are, it is finished. There was nothing more that needed to be done to secure the justification, the salvation of his people. Christ's blood is a sufficient sacrifice. He enters into the holy place, Hebrews tells us, putting his blood upon the upon, upon the upon the ark the heavenly in the heavenly temple and secures a, a, a once for all sacrifice a once for all atonement so paul isn't talking about as though his suffering somehow brings atonement or brings about justification for himself or even from the church it's quite possible that what he means is that there is possibly like a, a fixed amount of suffering that the church that the God who knows all things knows that we live in a broken world and that we have a future while we live in the already justified but not yet glorified, there is, a, there is an amount of suffering that is going to happen. Christ as the supreme one knows all things and he knows the sufferings of his people. So it's possible that there is this known amount of suffering that the people of God are going to endure until the final day of Christ. And Paul says, I'm filling up my part 
in the afflictions for the sake of Christ's body, the church. He is doing his part in filling up his afflictions. He is not living in an ivory tower. He is not some sort of super apostle who just lives his life in luxury, uh, lapping up the fat of the church and taking offerings and just living in his mansion, driving his Rolls Royce, you know, going out on his yacht, just living the high life. Uh, while the rest of the church suffers. He's saying, no, he's doing his part in filling, his, filling up uh, what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, the church. He, he answers this. You can look at Paul's life, and it's not hard to see this. His argument against the super apostles at the end of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, Paul lays out his sufferings. He says, uh, talking about the super apostles, and that's not a... That's a derogatory term. They're not, they're, not, they're not really super. It's kind of like, yeah, you're the super apostles, all right? This is what he's talking about. So when I say super apostles, I don't mean they're not really super. That's facetious. They're, they're not super. But anyway, they, verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Paul says, I'm talking like a madman. But he goes on, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and, and often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. He doesn't include that he was stoned to the point that they thought he was dead. Drug him outside of the city and left him. They thought, they thought they'd done the job. And then he gets up and walks back into, into the city. But he's been stoned uh, five times, three times beaten. Once I was stoned, three times shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? This is the life of the suffering apostle Paul. And he goes on down in, verse, in chapter 12 to speak about this thorn in the flesh. And maybe you've read that passage and had conversations. What in the world is the thorn in the flesh? And I'll give you the answer. We aren't really sure what the thorn in the flesh is. A messenger from Satan, he calls it. It could be like a, an actual individual in the city that is persecuting him. It could just be a false teachers persecuting him. It could be a literal physical ailment. We don't, we don't really, we aren't entirely sure what it is. But if you go on in, in chapter 12, down in verse 10, he speaks about, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We do not know for certain what this thorn is. It could be a particular persecution. But he's, he says there in verse 10 that he's content in his weaknesses. And that sounds to me like he might have in mind just the plain physical sufferings of a broken world. Weaknesses. Not necessarily something that someone's doing to him, but just, just the reality of living in a broken world. We have a lot of weaknesses. They, things are broken. Things don't work like they should. 
But whether your suffering is from gospel faithfulness, which is what a lot of this is, Paul is preaching the gospel, calling sinners to repentance, and is suffering persecution from it. Whether your suffering is from gospel faithfulness or just from natural evil in this world, there is something to pay attention to here. Because Paul says that he rejoices in his sufferings. He rejoices in his sufferings. How can that be? (laughs) How can he, through that list of things from the conversation about the super apostles, how can all of that going on, including physical weaknesses, possibly just physical illnesses and difficulties, in the midst of all of that, he rejoices. Think of that, to rejoice. To pray in the midst of suffering, Jesus, make yourself known is a difficult prayer, pertinent impossible prayer. But what, what has to be in place in order for that prayer to be prayed, that in the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of all these things going wrong in your life, and you've got a list of 15 petitions of things you'd like to see differently. And I'm not saying don't pray those 15 petitions. Pray those 15 petitions, those 15 requests. But all of them for Paul come under this banner of this higher prayer of Christ, make yourself known. Make yourself known. In order for that prayer to be prayed, there has to be this radical awareness of the value of Christ. A radical awareness of the value of Christ. I'm not denying the importance of prayers. Fix this problem. Make this better. I mean, in the midst of, uh, you know, this is, family, except for everyone here that is possibly streaming it, I guess. But, you know, last Sunday night when, when the issues with Darla are going on in the middle of the night and she's in incredible pain. And my prayer at that moment is, God, let's stop the prayer. Let's stop the pain. <laughs> you know, let's stop all the things that are going on. I'm making those on the ground prayers. And so don't hear me say, like Darren Please don't be deceived by that that false piety also. As though Darren only prays, oh, Jesus, just make yourself known. I'm so high and holy. I just pray for Jesus to be glorified and everything. No, I'm making all those prayers as well. But then, yes, there is something deeper that even in the midst of all the difficulties that come in your life, Paul is rejoicing in his sufferings because he has this great desire that over it all, He wants Jesus to be made known through his life and through his ministry. He says that this ministry is one that's been given to him by God. He says this, of which I became minister, verse 25, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And what is it a ministry of? End of verse 25, to make the word of God fully known. His desire, his heartbeat is that the full counsel of God's word would be heard and therefore rejoiced in. He wants as many as possible to hear this gospel and then to go on into maturing in Christ a full knowledge of the word of God. Why? For their full joy in Jesus. Because he knows the sufferings that he has come upon, that have come upon him, are not making him special. That is the life of a Christian in a broken and fallen world. And so as he's able to rejoice in his sufferings because he has a deep heartbeat that Jesus would be made known 
Because of his own joy in Jesus, he wants the world to hear this reality of the joy that is to be found in Jesus so that in the midst of sufferings that come your way, you might have the heartbeat of joy because you have Jesus and you want others to hear and to have Jesus. He wants as many as possible to hear the gospel from him, to go on into maturing in Christ, a full knowledge of the word of God for the full joy in him. And this is, Paul's argument has been this, working at this all along. God's plan, this is important, God's plan has always been Christ. God's plan has always been Jesus. Paul wants this, this truth, God's word, to be fully known. Now, he wants it to be, is it hard to understand God's word? I mean, that's like kind of a, a question I get from a lot of people, an argument I have with some people. Is it hard to understand God's word? Well, some would say that it is, but we will have a doctrine called the perspicuity of scripture. You guys like some big words? Perspicuity of scripture. All it means is the clarity of scripture. It's clear that there is a clarity to Scripture. There are some things, yes, that are hard to grasp. Even Peter says that about Paul's writings, which is kind of a funny section of the Bible. But but there are some things that are hard to grasp. But the things that, that God desires to make plain, he has made plain. But does Paul, when he says, I want the Word of God to be fully known, is, is he saying that it's, that it's hard to know it? Because he uses this word mystery, right? Does Paul believe not believe in the perspicuity, the clarity of Scripture? Is it a big struggle, struggle to see the full message of Scripture? That's not what he means. He, he uses this word mystery, but hear how he talks about it. He says the mystery in verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations. Now that sounds like, oh, there's something hidden that's really hard to understand. It's a mystery. It's been hidden for ages and generations. How are we ever going to understand it? He goes on, he says, this mystery, which has been hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's likely that we're getting to the issue of the right reason for the writing of Colossians, that there's these false teachers who are trying to promote a sort of mystery knowledge. Oh, it's great, you know, Jesus, but here, I've got the, I've got the real secret sauce over here. You know, I'm glad you know Jesus, but we got to move on into some really important, some mystery things. It's very attractive, even our world today. You know, a new book will come out and, and someone will be writing about what special things they've heard from God, special things they've heard from Jesus. And it's, you've got all your regular Christians and then you've got the Christians who are, who are, who've got Jesus and then they've got something even, even more. They've got even better. And that's what's going on in, in, the, in the church at Colossae. And, and Paul is arguing against that. The mystery is Christ in you. There's no, there's no greater, grander, hidden secret knowledge God's plan has been Christ. Christ is God's, all along, Christ has been God's plan. He's speaking of this hidden reality uh, of Christ in God's people all through the Old Testament up to his incarnation. All through the Old Testament, there's these types and images of Christ. God lays all of this found work, this groundwork, through the, through the calling and securing of the Jewish people as a type, 
as a foreshadowing of the rescue that his true plan was to rescue people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not just one specific ethnic group, but rescuing all types, all kinds, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You can see this in a few other places that Paul writes about this mystery. If you go back to the book of Ephesians chapter 3, I'll invite you to turn with me there if you'd like to. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, speaks again of this mystery. Paul writes on the same topic. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. You hear kind of the same language, this ministry been gifted to him. Sounds a lot like Colossians. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, similar language, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul is talking about this reality of the gospel, what Christ has done being made known such that even the, the spiritual realm sees, oh, this is what God was doing all along. This is what he was up to. All of that Old Testament work was pointing to this moment, pointing to really this person, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 16 is one other place where this same idea of, of mystery, it's in the doxology at the end of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 16 Verses 25 through 27 says, this is the doxology. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. So Paul in this mystery is that God all along his plan has been Christ. And we could go back, we don't have time this morning to do much biblical theology, but we could trace our way all the way through the Old Testament, starting clear back in Genesis 3.15, right? The proto-evangelion, the first gospel, in the cursing of Eve, she, has, she will bear this son, and this son will be bruised on the heel while bruising the serpent's head. And there's this imagery of there's this coming son from the line of Eve who's going to finally crush the wicked serpent's head, a fatal blow, and he will be bruised in the heel. He's going to be injured, but it will not ultimately take his life. Christ dies, but he's resurrected. That from all the way in Genesis 3.15, there is this reality pointing towards, forwards towards Christ. Genesis chapter 12 and the calling of Abraham, there is this seed, there is this descendant coming from Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not just one nation, not just one ethnic, ethnic group of people, but all people. We could go to people like Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it's verse 15, speaking of, I will raise up from among my people one like Moses. You can look that up on your own. Deuteronomy 18, 15, it's quoted twice in the book of Acts 
as a reference to Jesus. So there's just three examples, two from Genesis, one from Deuteronomy. We could go on to many more. God's plan all along is this work through Christ to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I do want to look at just this one, Isaiah, with you. Isaiah chapter 49. We're doing some Bible flipping here this morning, but it's it's worth it. Isaiah 49, to see this. Isaiah 49, verses 5 through 6, says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my strength uh, has be- and God and my God has become my strength. He says, "This God says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, Israel, and to bring back the preserve the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth." That's the mystery hidden. God has this people through Abraham, these descendants that are his, and yet somehow God's salvation is going to go to the nations. God's salvation is going to go to the Gentiles. Paul is saying that that mystery of the ingathering of all people into God's kingdom, that mystery is Christ and what he has done on the cross. This is the message he wants to make fully known. Those who are in Christ are God's true people. Those who are in Christ, this plan that God has been working since the creation of the world was to save a people through his son, Jesus Christ. There are, what that means is there are no second class citizens in God's kingdom. There are no special positions one works their way into. The incredible position is being found in Christ. God didn't make his plan a few times, have it go bad. I guess I'll take the second. Let's try this. Let's try that. Like you ever have, (laughs) you ever get a phone call when someone asks you to to do something for them? Or, well, I've had this before, but back when I was doing lay speaking, I'd get a phone call. Are you available on this day to, to preach? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Well, I tried so-and-so, and they weren't available. And then I tried this other person, and they weren't able to do it. And then and you're kind of like, well, you don't want to ask my dog first? I mean, you know, it's like, I, I, what number on the list am I? And that, that's not real flattering, is it, to be like fifth on the list to do something? You know, it's kind of like, well, gee, I, I guess I'll go stand up there and talk if you got no other option but me. That is not the way God's working here. It isn't like God had a plan and then, well, he's just going to settle. And that didn't work out. But I guess what I'll do is I'll send Jesus and, and he'll die for the sins of the world. And, and then we can bring in everyone. And we'll take, we'll take all you Gentiles. We'll take all those, these, the all nations, I guess, because we can't get this one. No, this is his plan all along. This is the mystery hidden for ages and generations all along through the Old Testament. Paul is telling this church, and by extension, telling you and I, we are full partakers of the riches of Christ. It's astonishing, really, if you could, if you could just take the time, I mean, to, to really get into what that means. The fullness of who God is, the fullness of his riches. 
not spilling over to, to pick up the crumbs, but his plan all along was to invite sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation to come and feast at his table, full participants in all that God has for his people. This means, Paul seeing this, he can rejoice in whatever suffering because he, the mystery has been revealed. God is bringing in, not as second-class citizens, but as full citizens, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from all over the world, all kinds of people, into the body of Christ. He can rejoice then in the midst of the suffering, no matter the intensity of it or the location of the attack. He knows whose he is, and he knows the message of the gospel for all men. These riches can be yours through Christ and not leftover riches. I mean, when he's talking about this Christ in you, the hope of half glory, I mean, actually, that'd be a great deal. I mean, if we could get uh, just a percentage of reward <laughs> from being those who are alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, if Jesus' reconciliation could get us forgiven and just a, a sliver of glory, of goodness, of God's favor, that would be astonishing in and of itself. But here he says, Christ in us, the hope of glory. How does this then help us in our suffering? Christ is no longer, I mean, all through that Old Testament, they're, they're longing for, for God to be for them. How can we get God to be for us? Building, the, building the, sacrif the, the sacrificial system is set up and they, they bring their sacrifices and offer their sacrifices just trying to get temporary stay of execution, basically. How can we get God on our side? Even if it's just for a moment, just till the next sacrifice, how can I make sure God is, is for me? And they build the temple and, and all of these things going on, just trying to get God to be on their side. Paul says that the, the glory of the gospel is that we don't get just Christ for us, we get Christ with us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. When Christ ascends, right, we know that he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And now by the Holy, the agency of the Holy Spirit in and out the world, in his people, God now actually dwells with you. If you are his by faith, turning from your sins, trusting in Christ, Christ now lives in you. You no longer have to seek just to have God for you. You have him with you. As those who are turning from sin, trusting in Christ and his redemptive work on the cross, Christ through the Holy Spirit actually moves in us and through us. There is never a moment where God's people walk alone. Christ is no longer just the God that we seek to have for us. He is the God who is with us. The riches of God's glory, the riches of God's inheritance, not only just parceled out to us because God had nothing else to do with them, but his plan all along to save a people through Christ, this mystery hidden, now revealed, riches untold, given to us, and Christ himself dwelling with us. If you are Christ's, you, are nev you never enter a hospital alone. It's, it's funny. I mean, you, you have to go in alone now, right? Because of SARS-CoV-2. <laughs> you do. I mean, it, right here in Ringo County, if you get in the ER, like, sorry, one at a time. 
Who's the one that's sick? You're in. The rest of you, you're out. I mean, even, you, even if you enter a hospital alone, you are, if you are Christ, you don't go anywhere alone. If you are his, you never enter into a tough conversation alone. Have a loved one or a friend that you want to witness to, you want to share the gospel with, someone who's got difficult things going on in their life, and you want to talk to them, you want to tell them about Jesus. You never enter a tough conversation on your own. If you are his, you never lay down at night that he is not with you. You never wake up in the morning that Christ is not near you and, yes, caring for you. Not as a second-class citizen. Not as somebody he had nothing better to do with, so he thought, well, I'll just, let's, no. Part of his plan all along, through Christ, saving a people for himself. Not as a second-class citizen or as someone he has to accept, but as part of the unfolding of the plan and purpose of God. This is the mystery now revealed, and the mystery that we now remember when we take communion we remember it, celebrating the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. How does this make Christ known? When all the suffering is going on, you know, the prayer and all of these things, rejoicing in my sufferings because Christ can be known. How does that make Christ known? Well, when we live this way, comforted by this truth over all else, it shows the supreme value of Christ. When we're able to say, when all of these things fall down, when all these things go wrong, when, when life throws me upside down and I can say I am a full partaker of the mystery of Christ in me, therefore in my sufferings I can rejoice, that makes Christ known for the glorious Christ that he is, giving us a treasure that far surpasses all other treasures. When we live this way, comforted by this truth, it shows the supreme value of the supreme Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us. Give us eyes to see. I want to rejoice in the fullness of this incredible good news. Your plan has always been Christ to save a people for yourself. And that if we are here this morning as your children, it is not by accident. It's been your plan to make us your own. And so we can with confidence, God, help us, fill us with the Holy Spirit. We with confidence can live treasuring you and trusting you. As we come to communion this morning, God, Help us to do that very thing, turning from our sin, turning from our self-satisfaction, turning from our self-reliance, turning to Christ, turning from the things of this world that, that draw us to treasure them, treasuring that which is truly valuable, Christ and Christ alone. Work in our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.